Colossians 2, 6-15, hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In 2009, U.S. Republican Senator Pat Roberts was speaking against a proposed health bill. And he said this, I am terribly concerned that we are riding hell for leather into a health care box canyon full of spending quicksand, cactus tax hikes, policy briar patches, complete with federal regulatory scorpions, rattlesnakes, and bad news bears. <laughs> now, um, this, uh, this speech mashes together a whole bunch of images. And it's kind of hard to figure out exactly what the meaning of some of these images are. Exactly how are tax hikes like cacti or policy like briar patches or this reference to regulatory scorpions, rattlesnakes, and then Bad News Bears. Bad News Bears was a 1970s kids movie about Little League. So it's hard to figure out how all these images fit together. And yet, in writing about this speech... Uh, Politico, there was an article in Politico that year, and that uh, they called it a great crotchety speech. And so the speech was effective. The speech was powerful with the adding on image after image after image. Even if we picked it apart, we might find some inconsistencies, some contradictions, some head-scratching references, and we'd say, what exactly is he trying to get? Uh, But uh, in spite of that, it was a powerful speech because of all these images. Now, while English professors might cringe, we can feel the power of these multiple images piled one upon another. When we get to the text today, we have something of a similar situation. And uh, in this situation, we find image piled upon image. And this is a rather difficult section because what what scholars do, they they go into this and they try to get exactly the reference to the image. And how does this image fit with that image? And they come up with all sorts of different ideas. 
And the reason for that might be because maybe that's not exactly how we're supposed to approach it. Maybe we're supposed to just feel the waves of these images rolling over us and feel the overall impact. Now, we will look at these images in some detail, but we won't try to get mathematical precision because that's not how metaphors or images are designed to work. Now, before we get to these images, we need to note something, and this is very important. And this is unique. This is unique about biblical ethics. Biblical ethics, how to live the, 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 uh, the philosophy or the, the, the standards of how to live. Biblical ethics always put these things together. The command of what to do or what not to do with the statement which is the reason that backs it up. These are no arbitrary commands. Uh, these commands are always grounded in statements. And the statements are statements about what God has done, or what God is doing, or what God will do. And so biblical ethics are, God does for you, God has done for you, God will do for you, all of these things, therefore... And there are the commands. And we see this even from the beginning in the the Ten Commandments. How do the Ten Commandments start? I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, have no other gods before me. What has He done for us? And then, uh, how we respond. Now, sometimes the commands are first, and then the reasons. And sometimes the reasons are first, then the commands. In this letter, in general, the reasons are first, and then the commands towards the end of the letter. But in this section, we have commands first. We have a positive command of something to do, a negative command, something not to do, a prohibition, and then we have the reasons. And in these reasons, we have a piling on of images about what God has done for us in Christ. Did you notice as I was reading this, and I may have, 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 uh, in my intonation, have emphasized this, but it's an emphasis that's in the text, this repetition of what phrase? In Him. In Him, in Him, with Him. And we've already seen this concept of, of, of union with Christ, which is the, the key to understanding the Christian life and understanding salvation. Now, with that introduction, let's look at these commands in verses 6 and 7, and then and 8, and then we'll look at the, the statements, the reasons in 8 through 15. So uh, here we have the therefore, therefore, As you received Christ the Lord, so walk in Him. And if you want a, if you want a summary statement of the letter of Colossians, this would not be a bad verse to choose. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Now, in American evangelicalism, we have this expression about receiving Jesus Christ. And it's, it's a personal sort of uh, interactive thing that, that we experience with Christ, a personal relationship it's all, often called. That's probably not the focus here, although that's not ruled out. But the language here is theological, doctrinal language. And it's literally like this. Therefore, as you received the Christ, Jesus, the Lord. The Christ, Jesus, the Lord. Which sounds like a summary doctrinal statement. And it's, it's not quite certain how we, should, how we should divide that. As you have received the Christ, Jesus the Lord, or the Christ Jesus, the Lord, 
But however you, however you put commas in there, the point is that this one Jesus, this one Jesus, we received teaching about Jesus, authoritative teaching about Jesus, and He is both the Christ, that is the Jewish Messiah, and He is the Lord. He is God Almighty. He is the ruler and the creator and the sustainer of all things. So this is a this is a very succinct doctrinal statement. And as you have received this message and you have believed this message about the Christ, Jesus, the Lord, walk that way. Walk according to that belief. Walk according to that which you have received. This is the not not the first time we've we've heard this. If you go to chapter one, verse nine. And 10, in this prayer, we find, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to do what? Walk. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. So if you've received this message, walk according to this message. Walk according to the message of Jesus the Christ, the Lord. Now, um, in this in this teaching, here here's the first mixing together of of images. So walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith. And here we have rooted an agricultural image. We have built up an architectural image. And then we have established, which is probably a legal image for something that is legally established in court. So, having been rooted, having been built up, having been established in this faith, what faith? The faith in Jesus, the one who is the Christ and the Lord, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So, there's an emphasis on what were you taught? What did I teach you? Well, Paul didn't personally, but what did Epaphras teach you? What did you receive? What is the message? Well, if you've been rooted in that, built up in that, established in that, then uh, you will abound in thanksgiving, but don't change course. Don't change course. And that's the next, that's the negative command. So walk in accordance with this declaration. And then for the first time, explicitly in verse 8, we find a mention of the false teachers. Now, Paul and Timothy have been hinting at them up to this point, but now more explicitly they mention, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Now, uh, perhaps um, perhaps this gives the idea that all philosophy is bad. Actually, that's not uh, exactly the idea. The idea is the philosophy of empty deceit. That is empty, deceitful philosophy. So be careful about empty, deceitful philosophy. Don't be taken captive by it, because empty, deceitful philosophy is according to two things. Human tradition. Not what you received authoritatively, the gospel, but human tradition. So be careful about empty, deceitful philosophy based on human traditions and according to the elements of the world. Here it's translated elemental spirits. This is a kind of a curious concept and, and scholars are trying to figure out what this means. It shows up here and it shows up in Galatians. And uh, what were the elements? Well, it was often used to describe the four elements, earth, uh, wind, fire, and 
Water, yes, so the four elements. But there was also a connection between these elements and spirits that controlled these elements. So it wasn't just a question of physics, these elements, but they had also, it had, it had kind of morphed into religion as well, or into philosophy, or into astronomy, or astrology. So there was this, this connection in the ancient world between these elements and the spirits that controlled those elements. So, human tradition and elemental spirits are behind these, these philosophies that are vain and empty and deceitful. So, they're, basically what they are not is they are not in accordance with Christ. So don't be taken captive, don't be dragged away by philosophies that are not in accordance with Christ. And what do we know about Christ? That He is Jesus, He is the Christ, and He is the Lord. That's the filter. That's the, that's the bottom line uh, test of all philosophies. Now, that's the command. Walk in Him and don't be dragged away. Simple enough. And then the question is, if any of your parents, you tell your child to do or not to do something, and what do they say? Why? Why should I? Why shouldn't I? Well, glad you asked. Here we have the answer. And uh, it's, it's, it's very clear. It's a, a major answer. It would have been sufficient, this one answer. But then he brings it out, or they bring it out, in five different images. So in verse 9, here's the, here's the explanation. For in Him, for in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. For in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, we have already seen this this word um, fullness, but it wasn't spelled out in chapter 119. It says, for in Him all the fullness, and we fill it in, uh, of God was pleased to dwell. But actually it just says, for all the fullness was pleased to dwell. A little bit ambiguous. The fullness of what? There's no ambiguity here the second time. It says, all the fullness of deity, of Godhood, of Godhead, dwells bodily, physically, fleshly in the Christ. And so, this is the bottom line argument. He is the chief and ruler over all authority. Uh, if you see, if you see uh, in verse sixteen or ten, I'm sorry, who is the head, the chief of all rule and authority. So, what's the idea? The idea is, he's, he's it. He, you, you can't get any higher. You can't get any better. You can't be, get any greater. You can't get any more supreme. If you want the maximum, if you want the bedrock, if you want the truth, you have to go to the one who is the creator of all. And where is that creator? Where do we find that creator? Where does he dwell? Well, he actually dwells bodily in the person of Jesus Christ the Lord. Now, that's an astounding statement. But that is the basic declaration of Christianity. And so the, the message then is there's no reason to look elsewhere. Why would you look elsewhere? Why would you look to human traditions? Why would you look to elemental spirits? Why would you go elsewhere when the fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ who is the Lord? And in addition to that, it says in verse 10, And you have been filled in Him. You have been filled in Him. Now here, it doesn't say filled with what? But uh, in in the original here, the in Him is actually at the beginning of this sentence, this clause. You have been filled in Him 
Rather, we could read it um, that, that for in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and in Him you have been full, filled. Now it doesn't say filled with what, but the emphasis is not on the what, the emphasis is on the where, or in whom. So, in Him dwells the fullness of God, and in Him you have been filled. So why go elsewhere? If this is where you get filled, if this is in whom you get filled, why would you possibly go elsewhere and look for anything else? And now we have the images. And we have five of them. And in these images, we find how we have been filled. Here's the filling up. And the first image is, is circumcision. Oh, by the way, what's the message? Somebody stops you on the street and says, what did you do this morning? I went to church. What did you do in church? Well, we worshipped, we, we ate and drank together, we, we heard the Word of God read and preached. What was it? It was Colossians. What's that? It's a message about Jesus. Well, what's it say? This is what it says. Christ only, not Christ plus. Christ only, not Christ plus. That's, that's the summary here. Why Christ only? Because in Him, in Him, the whole God dwells bodily. That's why Christ only, not Christ plus. Now, first image, circumcision. In Him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This, this is not easy here. To interpret, but we, we need to start with this idea. In verse 13, we find out, well, we already knew this, but it's emphasized that the people who were reading this letter were Gentiles. They were non-Jews. And so, they weren't part of the circumcision. They weren't part of Judaism. They were the uncircumcision as regard to the flesh. In verse 13, it says, uh, And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. In your Gentileness, in your non-Jewness, you were dead. And so, what's the solution? Well, the Jewish solution would be, and it looks like some of these philosophies that were invading the Colossian church were Jewish philosophies. So the Jewish answer would be what? You're uncircumcised in the flesh, what do you need? Well, you need circumcision in the flesh. That will take care of your uncircumcision in the flesh. And here, on the contrary, Paul and Timothy are saying, no, in Him... In Jesus, in Him, you were circumcised with what kind of a circumcision? A circumcision made without hands. You don't need this operation to be right with God. You don't need to become a Jew to be right with God. You need a circumcision, but a circumcision made without hands. And what is that? By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, the question here is this. What is this circumcision of Christ? What is this putting off of the body of the flesh? And there are two ideas. One is that it's the circumcision that Christ performs on us. That He performs this circumcision and puts off the body of our flesh. That is our our sinful nature. The other interpretation is the circumcision of Christ is the circumcision that Christ experienced on the cross. So that that we are... We are um, the, the body that was put off, the body of the flesh was put off, was Christ's body. That on the cross, it wasn't just a little piece of His flesh that was damaged. It was the body of His flesh when He was crucified on the cross. So it's the, the crucifixion of Christ is the circumcision of Christ. And that we are in Him 
have that circumcision as well. We participate in that circumcision. Now, I think the second of those, I think the second of those is probably the right interpretation, focusing on the fact that Christ was crucified, cut off in the flesh, and that we experience circumcision in Him, in union with Him. That's the first, that's the first image. The second image is, is baptism. And baptism here symbolizes burial. Verse 12. And what does burial symbolize? Death. So burial is, when we bury somebody, we're not hoping anymore, are we? We're not saying that maybe, perhaps, there's some remedy here. Burial is the, is the final step of death. It's saying this is over. And it says, in him you were, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism. So here, baptism is the, the symbol of being buried. And um, perhaps thinking of uh, immersion in water as being buried with him in baptism. And um, this, this image, this reference to baptism, uh, then says, it says, in which you were also raised with him. Now, there's some ambiguity here. This in which could also be another in whom. Either way is grammatically correct. So is it referring to buried with him in baptism and in that baptism you were raised with him? Or in him, in Jesus, you were raised with him? And I, I prefer to read it as in him. So, having been buried with Him in baptism, so baptism symbolizes death and uh, burial, in which, or rather in whom, you were raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God. So this is the second image. Circumcision is the first one. The second image is baptism, which means death, and then being raised. So the image is death and resurrection. The means of being buried with Christ is baptism. The means of being raised with Him is faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. So, buried with Him in baptism, and then in Jesus you are raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. So, the in Him. What happened to Jesus happened to those who are in Him. Jesus was circumcised on the cross. We're circumcised in Him. Jesus was buried. If we're in Him, we were buried. And Jesus was raised. If we're in Him, by faith we are raised as well. The third image. Now this is where there's a little bit of kind of overlap here because it backs up to when we were dead. And so we just read about being raised and now we go back to death again. So there's some overlap in these images here. So the the third image is, you were dead, God made you alive in Him. Verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses, violations of the law of God, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh which is being Gentiles, and Gentiles are by nature separated from God, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions or trespasses. So this image backs up to when we were dead. It says we're dead because of our own sins, dead because we were Gentiles separated from God. And the solution was for God to make us alive together with Christ. Now, think about this image. Think about this image. Because many times we, we are mistaken about what salvation is. We as humans flatter ourselves and we think, well, we need some help from God. We need some help. And you know, we, we'll, we'll get part of the way there ourselves. We'll take care part of it, but God really needs to help us the rest of the way. You know, we'll, we'll do what we can and then God can, can help us get the, the final lap. But that's not the image that's here. We were, what? Dead. Dead. 
hopeless, unable to do anything to move ourselves towards God. We didn't need help. We needed resurrection. We need to be raised from the dead. And that's the image that's here. It's not that God helps those who help themselves, but that God helps those who can't possibly help themselves. Why not? Because they were dead. And that's that's the picture of salvation here. Now, what did He do? What did He do to, to, um, to raise us from the dead? What's the explanation here? connects it with a, an expression that we don't find a great deal in Paul, but we found it twice in Colossians. Made us alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, and then into verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Now we have a switch in the image here. It's a, the, the image of a certificate of indebtedness, an IOU, as some people translate this. And here, this, this certificate of indebtedness was a legal document because there were legal demands that were justly against us and we owed a debt because of our failure to keep the terms of this legal document. And it says that he took this, this record of debt that stood against us and he nailed it to the cross. And here's another image that's mixed in here. It's, it's kind of an odd image, right? Of a certificate of debt being crucified. And so here, like I say, there's, there's some, some overlap and there may be some inexactitude, a lack of mathematical precision, but, but we're getting the image here piled upon image, piled upon image. And now we have this certificate of a debt that is saying, you owe, you owe, you owe, you must pay. And that certificate of debt was crucified, was nailed to the cross. We might think of the, the, the custom that used to exist, apparently not so much anymore because people don't pay off their houses anymore, but there used to be this, this uh, mortgage burning back in the last century, and apparently that's considered to be in bad taste now, to kind of boast that, hey, I, I paid off my mortgage, sorry you haven't. But there used to be these parties where you'd, you'd get your friends and family together and you would physically burn the mortgage because the debt was paid. We're here, the, the, the mortgage, the IOU, the certificate of debtedness, indebtedness has been, has been burned. It has been crucified. It has been nailed. And there is no more debt. It has been paid. And therefore, that's how we can have the forgiveness of all our sins. The end of verse 13. He made us alive together with Him. How did He do that? Having forgiven us all our trespasses. How did He forgive us all our trespasses? He took care of them. He paid them. He nailed them to the cross. And so they are no more. I remember in in one missionary conference, uh, I was not serving communion, another group of pastors, and so I was just in the congregation, which was a nice thing, and I was able to just listen to the sermon and able to be served communion. And I walked up to the communion table and a friend of mine who was a fellow missionary, a fellow pastor, he was serving the elements and to each person he was saying something like, the body of Christ, which is for you. And then when I think he was serving just the cup and he served me the cup and he was not even looking at me and he just was saying the same thing to everyone. And he said, the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And I stopped. And I took the cup and I looked at him and he realized something unusual was happening here. 
because I wasn't just going through the line. I looked at him because I had a question for him. He had just told me, the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And I wanted to know something from him. I wanted him to tell me something. I wanted to hear it. And so I asked him a simple question. I looked him in the face and I said, all of them? And he looked back at me and he said, yes, all of them. And I thought, that's the best news I've ever heard in my entire life. All of them. And that's what it says here. How did He make us alive? By forgiving us, not from some, not from the big, not from the little, but from all of our trespasses. And that was, and still is, the best news I've ever heard in my life. Now, there's one more image. And here they ramp it up. Verse 15. It's the image of thrashing the rulers and the authorities. Those those elemental spirits that people were tempted to follow, well, they have been thoroughly thrashed. Verse 15. He disarmed them. The verb is he stripped them off. He stripped the rulers from himself and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Where? In him. So here's the, here's the culmination. It's the thrashing of those elemental spirits. It's the thrashing of those rulers and authorities that he himself created and they rebelled against him. This is, this is a victory dance at the end of this section. And the background to this may be the Roman custom that we might find appalling, but the Roman custom of taking those conquered soldiers from the other tribes and other nations and parading them through the streets of Rome to trash talk, to taunt, to, to emphasize the, the victory that they had celebrated over these other armies. And that may be the background here. So in Him, what is God doing? God is taking these, these rulers and authorities and He is parading them through the streets to show that His victory over them has been complete and total. So why? Why would, why would anybody want to go after them? They're the, they're the conquered enemy. Why would somebody want to sign up to follow them instead of the one who had just put them to shame? This is theological taunting if there ever was such a thing. This is theological smack talk where, where, where Paul and Timothy are, are kind of dancing around here and, and, and in this victory that God has accomplished in Jesus over these rulers and authority at the risk of of piling up too many sports images. This is the spiking of the football in the end zone after the 80-yard pass that wins the, the, uh, the final championship. This is the, the hitting the tennis ball into the stands after winning Wimbledon. This is the, the casual walk around the bases after the walk-off home run uh, to end the World Series. This is the this is the, the ripping off the jersey and, and spinning it around in the air after winning the World Cup on a a hat trick ended with a bicycle kick. Okay? This is this is the, the hanging on the rim 
after the 360 slam dunk to end the NBA Finals and walk off with the victory. You see, this is taunting. This is victory celebration. But it didn't look like it, did it? It looked like a Galilean peasant being hung on a Roman cross. That's what it looked like at the time. It looked like a victory celebration, didn't it? It looked like the victory celebration of the Jews who were opposed to Jesus, of Pontius Pilate, of the Romans, of the enemies. It looked like a victory celebration of those rulers and authorities. It looked like a victory celebration. And it looked like Jesus was the one who had been thrashed. Because He was there, dying on a cross. That doesn't look like a taunt. That doesn't look like a victory. That doesn't look like conquering. And and for that reason, Christians are sometimes tempted, like these Colossians, to say, Jesus plus, instead of Jesus only. A Galilean peasant dying on a Roman cross just doesn't look very impressive. Maybe we we should clean that up a bit. Maybe we should add something more impressive to that. Maybe we should fish around in the world's ideas and see if we can come up with something that would clean this idea up a bit and make it a, a bit more respectable in the world's eyes rather than a crucified man dying. But we need to remember something, folks. Jesus is not the Christ, the Jewish Messiah, and the Lord of all, in spite of that that embarrassing incident that took place on the cross. Jesus is the Jewish Christ, the fulfillment of all the hopes and expectations of Israel, all the promises of God throughout the Old Testament, and He is the Lord of all. All things visible, invisible, thrones, powers, dominions, authorities, things to come, things present, things future, things past. He is the the ruler of all. Not in spite of, not in spite of dying on the cross, but because He died on the cross and God raised Him from the dead. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus, the Christ, the Lord of all. Because you died. Because you were circumcised on the cross. Because you were buried. Because God raised you from the dead. Because you thrashed those rulers and authorities. And you did so in the most unexpected manner possible. By dying on a Roman cross. Lord, keep us from looking for anything else. Keep us from looking for philosophies, traditions, ideas that would apparently clean this up, but really would deny it. 
Jesus, keep us near the cross. And help us to walk. This is the message we received 2,000 years later. The message that Jesus is the Christ, the Lord of all. And we pray that we would walk in Him. That's it, Lord. That we just wouldn't go anywhere else. That we would walk in Jesus and not be drawn astray. And we pray in His name. Amen.